Welcome to the Healing Place podcast, a space filled with inspirational stories of hope, along with practical advice for your healing journey. Your host is Terry Welbrock, trauma warrior, writer, speaker, blogger, therapy dog handler, and founder of the Sammy's Bundles of Hope Project. As a survivor and a thriver, Terry's mission is to shine the light of hope into the world by interviewing insightful guests from across the globe. Please stay tuned at the end of today's interview as we honor our sponsors. The Healing Place podcast is a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas. Now, here's your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place Podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and excited to have with me today Kelly Palfi, PhD, and I am just really thrilled to have her here to talk about, you can see if you're watching the video, the poster behind her, uh, her book, Men Too, uh, Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse. I'm reading it off of the, off the poster, so welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Happy to be here, Terry. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I just, I can't wait to dive into to the work you're doing in the world. Um, so talk to us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. Yeah. So I am a psychologist. Um, uh, however, prior to becoming a psychologist, I was a police officer. So I worked for the Federal Police Agency in Canada, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And during that time, I specialized in sex crimes committed against children. So uh, during the investigations I witnessed via video and the, the exhibits that we would have to s- review, um, just that boys are victims too. And I guess part of, uh, like, so now as a psychologist, I specialize in trauma and specifically in adult male survivors of sexual abuse, um, in part because, you know, during that time, I just was so aware that I was considered the expert in this area and I knew nothing about it. So it sort of became this, like, okay, well, if I'm the expert and I know nothing about it, what about everybody else out there? Nobody knows that boys are being victimized too. Like people just don't talk about it. So, so that was sort of my motivation for getting into this type of work. Yeah. And now, yeah, I've written a book and work with adult male survivors of sexual abuse. Beautiful. And again, it's just such a, it just needs to have that spotlight shined on it because it is one of those hard to talk about topics uh, sexual abuse in general, mm-hmm. um, but then yeah, bringing it, bringing it up, and with male sexual abuse, there's almost more. Like it seems like women are starting to talk about it more and more and more. And yes, men are starting to come forth and talk about it, but it's still almost like taboo. So uh, absolutely, Terry. And you know, it's kind of known that you know boys and men are the least to talk about it, right? Like you know, the victims themselves don't often talk about it. And there's there's lots of reasons for that. You know, sometimes it's their own confusion, sometimes it's shame, sometimes it's fear. Lots of times it's actually protecting their families. Like my family couldn't handle this, my parents couldn't handle this. And then you know, like, you know, let's say they go to a psychologist or, or a counselor for help. If the psychologist doesn't sort of make it known that this is an okay thing to talk about, they still often don't talk about it. Yeah. You know, they'll talk about everything else, like the symptoms or whatever they're experiencing, but, you know, you wind up sort of putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound when it needed surgery. Right. Yeah. Well, and social, I mean, social stigma, I just think it's, it's shifting, yes. but I still think there's that, that social 
aspect part of it. Yeah. I think it's kind of shock too, to be honest, Terry. Like I, I think that, you know, I, I really truly believe that society just doesn't suspect it near as much as they should. Right. Like there's this sort of like, not in my backyard mentality, right? Like it happens out there, but not right close to home. Right. Well, and I think about that with predators as well. Like, you know, the numbers are so staggering. What is it? One in seven boys, one in four girls. I mean, that's just, it's, it's disgusting. It's huge. It's, but then I think, well, who are these people doing this to these kids? You know, I mean, there's different types of offenders, right? There's, so there's situational type of offender who would offend against a kid anytime there's an opportunity. And then there's a preferential type of offender. And these are the ones that will sort of um, create their own opportunities. So they're the people who are establishing themselves in careers so that they can have access to children, right? So the, like when I was a police lady, I watched a video of a man who said he entered the cleric because he knew he'd have access to children. And because he knew there, he would be likely to be believed over a child. And also, you know, there's what there's been some, a lot of cover up in the past, right? So he had all that sort of feeling of protection, plus he had access to children. And, you know, the same is true for um, adults who go into careers where they coach children or teach children or, or just generally have access to them. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. You know, there's a really good book that I read by Dr. Ann Salter, and she talks about how the offender will work really hard to present himself as the least likely person you would ever suspect. Isn't that gross? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're the ones that are befriending the family. They're the ones that are like, you know, helping out, filling that void, you know, becoming Uncle Ted or whatever, you know, and yeah. just like, you know, like so trustworthy. He just loves our children just like we do. Right. Watch for signs. I say, like, if they don't have adult friends of their own, not healthy, right? If they're only befriending children, if their world revolves around being there to support your child, chances are they could have an ulterior motive. Yes, for sure. I remember a story. Uh, we were having a picnic in the park with our kids and with another family and their kids. And the other family's little girl came running up. Now my kids were over there playing in the playground too. And we were behind some pine trees at the picnic tables. And so the playground was on the other side and the little girl came running up and said, you know, mommy, daddy, can I go, can I go help uncle David look for his puppy? And you know, everybody's all of the adults eyes shot open uncle David, who is uncle David? Wow. And, and it was um, a man there playing wow. with children in the playground and said, wow. hey, let's go over to the woods and you know, find my lost puppy. Um, wow. well, yeah, obviously the police were called and things yeah. happened, but it was scary moments, yeah. And it was an Uncle David sort of thing, yeah. And somebody did some good parenting there that the child knew enough to ask their parent before taking off, right? Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in your book, you, you really look at um, the lives of, of some survivors, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 13 men, yeah. Okay, so do you wanna to talk to us about um, the discoveries and what your book entails? Discoveries, from which angle do you mean? Were there aces involved, adverse childhood experiences that made them more vulnerable? I mean, was there a pattern? Yeah. Was it just, yeah. Oftentimes there was. Um, well, not, not every time, obviously, but you know, I can think of, um, 
you know, one boy who lost his father and then the teacher, not his teacher, but a teacher befriends mom and says, hey, you know, I'd like to be the one to step up and, you know, be a role model to your son. And of course, abused him when he was vulnerable and grieving his father. But other times there wasn't, you know, a family friend, one, one boy in my book, his name was Aaron. He was 15. He had a girlfriend, went off to basketball camp and the coach, you know, kind of stroked his ego, said, you know, you're the hardest working kid in camp. I'd love to have you stay after camp and help me break it down and I'll pay, I'll pay you or whatever. And, you know, then he starts the whole grooming process, treating him like a man instead of a 15 year old, letting him drive the truck, letting him drink alcohol, introduces him to pornography, introduces him to masturbation, that kind of stuff. So, and then took him home, dropped him off and shook his parents' hand like nothing happened. Okay. So, um, Oftentimes, so yes, they will target vulnerable children, single parent families where, you know, the parent has run off their feet or, you know, just aware that the boy is missing, you know, for example, the father figure or something. But, but many times it's the cousin, the older cousin who's left to babysit when mom and dad are upstairs playing and that kind of stuff. So not always a vulnerable child, but very often. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I, I only ask because I've just found in my own readings, in my own research, my own history that, that predators just seem to go after vulnerable children um so often they want easy targets right they're not after the thrill of the hunt they want the easy target so if a vulnerable child is available he's an easy target having said that like in my research i think i mean at least 40 percent. i can't remember the exact number but several of them were abused by their own bio parent two by moms and several by fathers yeah yeah, one of my dearest friends just adopted uh, three children whose parents both went to prison because of um, sexually abusing their children. Yeah. It's not as uncommon as we would love to believe. Right, sadly. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, so any other topics that you wanted to, to dive into outside of sexual abuse? Well, Terry, I mean, just to maybe take what we were just saying just one step farther, you know, this idea that abuse happens a lot more frequently than we would like to believe, right? There's, I'm sure you've probably heard of this concept of willful blindness, right? So it's this idea that, you know, your, your gut instinct might kick in that maybe something's not right with that kid or that, you know, something's not right with that adult, that they're possibly grooming a child. But then there's a little part of our brain that says, oh, that would be too awful. Come on, don't be ridiculous, right? And that part of the brain, you know, tells the, the, the rational, logical part of your brain not to be ridiculous. And, and we choose to ignore those sort of instincts. So that's actually really common, this idea of willful blindness. So I think, you know, just being aware that we have this sort of innate tendency to disregard things that would be too awful if they were true. Yeah. Margaret Heffernan wrote a book called, called Willful Blindness, I believe. And she talks about a mom who saw her husband coming out of her daughter's room after reading her bedtime story. And she saw that he had an erection and she confronted him about it. And he basically said, that's disgusting. Like, come on, what are you accusing me of? Get a grip, you know? And several years later, a doctor said to her, your daughter has evidence of sexual abuse. And then it's like, she starts to remember this, right? I did see that. He told me I was being ridiculous, right? So maybe just this sort of idea that, you know, we shouldn't discard our natural instincts. Yes. Absolutely. I try, we try to teach our daughter who's 14, go with that gut, <laughs> mm-hmm. go with that gut because it, yes. I mean, I think as, as we start to understand more the, the connections of, yeah. of the energy that happens within us. Yes. That that gut a lot of times is, uh, 
Well, probably we, all the time. Whether, whether it's a biological thing or a spiritual thing or what, but we have neuroreceptors in our gut. And, uh, you know, the research shows that we can perceive more in our gut. Uh, we can see, perceive more in our gut faster than we can see things, for example. Like, like the occipital nerve is slower than our receptors, our, our gut receptors. So we might be looking around for danger and we don't know where it is, but we sense it. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. But, yeah. It's kind of like knowing that you're in danger and then looking around and spotting it. There it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And I mean, it, and it happens. And when you do become in tune with it, it is amazing how, um, and you honor it, um, really, how, how it then be, even becomes more evident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Awesome. So any myths or facts that you would like to clarify? I'm sure there's, I mean, there's, you know, I, th- I think a big one for men is, you know, um, well, one, th- one thing that I recognize amongst um, male survivors is they often judge themselves, for example, as if they knew then what they know now, right? So they have this idea that they should have been able to stop their abuse or the fact that they got an erection means that they were willing participants, that kind of stuff. So I really like to bust those kind of myths. Like, no, you were a little boy, you know, parents, adults are supposed to protect you. It's not up to you to protect yourself. Although I do believe that if we can educate children, it's not unhealthy, that's for sure. But, um, you know, just that this idea that, you know, they're not alone, that they have a voice, they can talk about this, that, you know, that it, just because they're abused, even if their body responded, you know, it doesn't, you know, speak to their sexuality or anything like that, right? Their body responded the way God designed it to respond if they get erections. And, you know, just that, um, yeah, that they're not to blame or that their abuse made them gay or anything like that, you know, or that, um, what else would we say? What else would I say? Um, yeah, you know, you know, just like what we talked about earlier, that it's a lot more common than we think, right? Um, th- those were some myths. Maybe some facts would be, um, you know, uh, around around male suicide. Actually, you know, like uh, abused boys and men are 14 times more likely to commit suicide than an abused female. Um, I think the suicide statistics are three times that for men over women, right? So, to me, that always like why, you know? Yeah. Um, there's research out of Iceland. Um, it was called Deep and Unbearable Suffering Consequences of Childhood Sexual Abuse or something like that. And she was um, talking to 14 different men who said that the only reason they came forward was because they were either going to come forward or kill themselves. So to me, that kind of speaks to that statistic about suicide, how many people chose the alternative, right? So, right. you know, different research shows different statistics depending on the population that's measured. But on average, um, the statistics in the general population kind of reveal yeah, one out of every six boys is sexually abused to some extent prior to the age of 16. So when you think about the fact that victims don't feel like they can talk about it, psychologists and counselors aren't the ones bringing it up, you know, these myths in society about what it means to be a man. I just think that, I think that there's a, I think personally that there is a correlation between male sexual abuse and the increased suicide rates. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and male victims are a lot less likely to acknowledge their sexual abuse than a female, uh, you know, because of the fact that there's often grooming involved and there's often, you know, um, you know, a relationship established before the abuse occurs. Like 90% of abuse happens by someone we know and love, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that, lo- that knowing and loving piece can be very confusing for boys and men. They look back and they say, oh, well, I was obviously willing. We were friends before this happened. Kind of like the whole Michael Jackson thing, you know, the boys that were claim disclosing that they were abused by Michael Jackson, you know, they say like, I was in love with him, right? Like we were friends. I was, I loved him, you know? Yeah. It's very common. Yeah. And so 
What are your thoughts? And, and again, this is a dive deep question, but on stopping this, is it, is it be, helping these, these young men and well, anyone who's sexually abused process their trauma and then it stops there because isn't there a history that if a lot of times those who are abusing have been sexually abused? That's another interesting point that Dr. Salter talks about in her books. So a lot of perpetrators will claim that they were abused themselves, but it's also being recognized as a sort of a way to sort of get a lesser sentence. So um, her research showed that, well, research that she quotes in her book anyways, was talking about how 70% of perpetrators claim that they were sexually abused. And then when you give them a polygraph, that number dropped down to about 30 Wow. So, so a lot of them are basically lying, saying that they were sexually abused to get that sympathy from the judge or, you know, whoever, right? There, there's research that shows about 9% of um, victims will become perpetrators. So it's actually much lower than what was, what was previously believed. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing. Gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that perpetrators would like the, just the level of deception that they go to, Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, again, that throws a whole new light onto it of, um, because I always was not that I was making excuses, but Oh my gosh, they were sexually abused as well. And it was just yeah. a continuation of the, yeah. you know, the path. Have that empathy. Yes. Create that, have that empathy for them. Oh, well, I guess they just, you know, and I, I heard it when I first started researching male survivors that, you know, victims you know, victims either stay victims, become helpers, or sometimes become abusers to stop that voice of being a victim. But I think that is like, like I say, a lot less prevalent than, you know, because I mean, all of the men that I've ever spoken to say that, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't dare dream of becoming an offender. And in fact, some of their biggest struggles are because they fear they could become an offender, even though there's no desire, but, you know, they don't, you know, like one of my participants said that, you know, he felt guilty every time he changed his daughter's diapers, right? Because he, he had to touch her and clean her. And in his mind, he was like, way too close to sexual abuse, right? But no, he's caring for his child, right? Right. Yeah. I, one of my clients last week said, you know, he feels guilty every time his niece comes and snuggles with him, right? And that's so sad. But it also to me speaks to the fact that these guys have no interest in becoming offenders. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, you gave me something new to think about. I mean, yeah. Would you like to talk about anything else as we move forward? Sure. I mean, maybe just the, the grooming process might be helpful because, um, you know, people, again, there's this sort of idea about like, like, where is this happening? This is not happening in my backyard kind of thing. And um, I think it's just really um, helpful for people to be able to sort of spot the process, you know, like, so, so if we have, if you have like an adult in a situation where they're, um, you know, specifically working with children, you know, it's just okay to be aware that this happens, right? So what, what we really want to watch for is if you have the adult isolating the child from other children, for example, you know, um, hiring him, like he's his basketball coach, but then he hires him to do something else. Now you've got him separating him from the pack, right? Oftentimes with um, youth and teens, um, they will introduce things like wrestling or rough play or whatever, so that the victim gets used to the idea of being touched by the perpetrator. So, you know, it's often the guys that are teaching martial arts or tactical things like, let me teach you how to do takedowns and defend yourself. And that's actually a very inter interesting point because perpetrators might be the type of person that are protecting them from everybody else except themselves, right? So they protect the, the victim from being bullied at school, they stand up for them or, or they might 
you know, try to tell the victim that, hey, I went through that too. I totally get you. This is what happened to me. So they create this sort of a bond. They might treat them as if they're older than they are, like introducing them to things that their own parents might not let them do, like, for example, video games or alcohol or cigarettes or drugs or pornography. And they do this sort of to test the waters, right? Because, you know, it's better to be found out for giving a kid a, a beer than for touching him. So they'll introduce some of these things first and wait a while to see if they get reported on. So if they don't get reported on, then they have this secrecy bond between them that, um, that they will then use, right? You know, don't tell your parents. If you tell your parents, we'll both be in trouble, right? So once they've established that sort of secrecy uh, bond between them, then they will kind of move it to the next level and introduce sexual touch. And often it's uh, initiated through things like introducing pornography, sometimes of other children engaged with adults or children with children or men with men or women with women, depending on, you know, whatever, whatever their sex and the sex of the victim is, they're going to introduce that so that it looks normalized, right? So it lowers their inhibitions. And then they will, you know, oftentimes that, you know, they'll, once they, you know, they'll commit the acts, but in sort of in their mind in a seductive loving way so that it's kind of, um, established as a romance rather than sexual abuse right so and then when they're done they'll point out to the victim oh look you had an erection you obviously liked this so their goal is always obviously always to leave the victim confused and then they would remind them you know of the things that they are bonded on the secrecy you know you've done all these things and you know you know maybe not overtly but sort of under the radar so to speak where they'll just be reminding them, you know, the victim of all the ways they're going to be in trouble if they report, right? Like your parents would never let you drive a vehicle. Like don't tell your parents about that, right? So it's kind of this veiled threat. Um, yeah, and then just, they just, you know, basically try to leave them confused as if this was, you know, a mutual decision and that they were willing participants. And yeah, so, and with younger children, they'll often start off by tickling them. Or by, you know, if they're throwing them around in the pool or something, they'll be grabbing them by the crotch and throwing them and stuff like that. And oftentimes they'll, you know, it, it's, you know, sometimes maybe not even initially detected by the child the first time. But if it happens again, you know, hey, he touched me, he inserted a finger or something like that in the process. Um, but, you know, again, this sort of confusing situation for the child because of the relationship and because, you know, because the parent is saying, hey, Uncle Johnny is safe, right? <laughs> And, and they're right there, sitting there right there while this is happening. So, yeah, again, their ultimate goal is to leave the victim confused and, you know, to win the trust of the parents. The perpetrators groom parents too, right? Like, oh, they will yeah. groom the parents to believe that, you know, they're safe people and that they're trustworthy, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I know with mine, I was, uh, one of my perpetrators was my choir director in fifth grade. And, and it was exactly what you just stated of, uh, telling me, oh my gosh, you have such a beautiful voice. I'd love to work with you privately yeah. after practice mm -hmm. when all the other kids would go home because he knew I walked home, um, mm -hmm. that I had parents, you know, that were out of the household and a grandmother was there. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and, and my mom adored this choir director. She, you know, she was very Catholic going to daily mass. And, you know, this, this man was wonderful in her eyes and mm. loved his wife and they were friends. Yeah. And he knew it. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately it is that scenario oftentimes if it almost seems too good to be true, right? Like maybe he's offering to help you get like recognized or whatever. And that is so common that, you know, it's the, it's the high level hockey coach who's saying, Hey, you have special skills. I recognize you as the best. Let me get you to the big league. Right. 
the, the, you know, obviously the boy wants that. So. Right. Yeah. Can, can we talk a little bit for a second, maybe about if, if a child does approach a parent and mm-hmm. tells the truth um, mm-hmm. and, and actually has the courage to come forth, um, how caregivers should respond? Yeah. Um, yeah, first off, never send the message that the victim is to blame in any way, right? Thank them for coming forward, ask them what they need, you know, comfort them, let them know you believe them, um, support them, you know, promise them protection, you know, that you're going to keep them away from that person as best you can and that you're going to support them, that kind of thing. Yeah, basically, you want to Oftentimes, children will not report unless they have prompts or and privacy. So, you know, for example, if you were to suspect something was going on, create that privacy and open this conversation, saying, you know, I've noticed a change in your behavior. I've noticed a, that you know you're you're more isolating than you used to, or you seem angry, and I just want to know if something happened to you. Did somebody did somebody do something to you? Has somebody hurt you in any way? Right? And you know, I'm here. Make space. Make time just have a sit down conversation and, you know, help them feel safe and let them know that if something did happen, they can talk to you and it's not their fault, basically. Yes. Beautiful. All right. Awesome. All right. You know, it's such a good question though, Terry, because oftentimes secondary abuse uh, or secondary victimization, if, if, for example, a child is not believed by their parent or if they're made to feel like it was their fault, that is even more damaging than the abuse because the person who is supposed to be their safe place has now just betrayed them. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, well, absolutely. Yes. I even know as an adult, I'm telling you, when I, when I finally told my parents, it all came out afterwards. Well, just a few years ago with my mother, I was saying, mom, I'm writing this book and I'm going to talk about, you know, all of that happened to me. You're going to be in it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the first thing she said was, oh my God, don't use his name. And said the name of the choir director. Wow. And I, I just remember being taken aback, like, but he sexually abused me repeatedly and you're worried about his reputation? Like, yeah. What? His reputation should be soiled. Otherwise, other people are going to get abused. Right? right. Right. Exactly. And even as an adult, it just felt as a violation of, yeah, my truth. So, yeah. I'm, sorry that was, I'm sorry that was your experience. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Well, we worked through it and I, I, I set her straight. <laughs> And, and that's good because I, I, I do, that was a lot of reasons why a lot of the men stayed silent is because, you know, that generation just doesn't even suspect and, you know, that, that, you know, doesn't suspect that boys are victims and just that it doesn't happen. And yeah, a lot of the reasons the men that I spoke to said they didn't disclose was just this idea of maintaining this facade, right? That everything's perfect in this family. Everything's perfect in the church. Like that wouldn't happen. That didn't happen in my backyard. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, any last thoughts before we close out? I'm good, Terry, but thank you so much for this opportunity. I think you commented earlier about how do we make this change, right? By doing exactly what you're doing, we talk about it and we create space where boys and men can feel safe to come forward. So thank you for, thank you for, you know, using your, your own healing journey to help others heal too. So that's awesome. Thank you so much. So how do, how do people get a hold of you? Um, kellypalfy.ca is my website um, and my book is on Amazon uh, Men Too Unspoken Truths About Male Sexual Abuse awesome all right well I'll put links out and all of that stuff so people can can find your book and uh, again I thank you for the beautiful work you're doing in the world for helping others along their healing journey 
Ditto, Terry. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, everyone, thanks so much for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today to the Healing Place podcast with your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Terry, her mission, and the Hope for Healing journey, visit Terry's website at www.terrywellbrock.com. Thank you for liking, commenting, sharing, and offering your reviews on our YouTube channel, audio outlets, and Facebook page. And as Terry reminds us, until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself. Thank you.